Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, whenever you may be listening. This is the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the Council, as well as your host for this series. I want to thank all of our returning listeners, as well as any newbies out there. These important, fact-based conversations provide you with the information necessary to be an informed citizen, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen in. It is because of you that we can continue these great discussions. A huge thank you going out to our supporters for all their help in ensuring the sustainability of our organization. From our members, to our donors, and our sponsors, I am forever grateful for your support. A particular shout out to our podcast sponsor, McLean Middleton, for your ongoing support of this great program. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. They are a true community leader and convener. Today, we are talking about the future of work with Kevin Cassidy, the director and representative to the Bretton Woods and multilateral organizations at the International Labor Organization Office for the United States. Kevin will join the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire on October 5th to discuss how corporate social responsibility and environmental, social, and governance factors can lead to better outcomes for companies and communities. We hope you can join us for that program, either in person or online, at www.wacnh.org. Without further ado, let's jump right in. back to where you were in your work life at the start of 2020. So many of us never would have expected to be where we are today, whether that is at a new job, having successfully navigated remote work, or just having a new perspective on work-life balance. The massive shifts in work since the start of the pandemic has been dizzying for many and almost unprecedented for most. However, this is not the first time tectonic shifts have taken place. Going back over 100 years ago, a new social contract was beginning to form, coming out of some of the worst abuses of the Industrial Revolution. So the the drive to create the ILO came in large part to remedy the chaos, deprivation, destruction of World War I, to set the rules of the emerging global economy amidst other competing economic models. Capitalism was one of many. And uh, of course, the need to improve these appalling working conditions that were faced by many in the early decades of the Industrial Revolution. In this world of 55 plus hour work weeks, little protections in the way of health, safety, or wages, workers started to demand more from their employers, particularly in the wake of the First World War. As the world shifted out of war mode, there was a fundamental need to redefine the global economy. 
Women had taken over a huge portion of manufacturing jobs, while the men were fighting in the trenches. Millions of prime-age men died in the war, and whole sectors, economies, and countries had been destroyed. In light of this, the International Labor Organization was formed. But what exactly is the ILO, and what are their goals? You know, the ILO is an important and unique institution in the sense that work sits at the nexus of the economic and social spheres. It's where we interact with the world around us. It builds networks and contacts and friends. It defines who we are. And it's also a peaceful means of earning a living. So the ILO predates the UN, although we are a technical agency of the UN system. We come out of the Treaty of Versailles and are based on the premise of social justice and decent work. And for that work, we won a Nobel Prize in 1969. The ILO has standing within the UN, so we are seated at the General Assembly, ECOSOC, Security Council, ECOSOC, Secretariat, and the International Court of Justice. But the ILO is also an economic actor, and it has a seat at the table with the G7, the G20, OECD, the World Bank, and the IMF. And it's different from other UN agencies, firstly, because we have a tripartite structure, which means that we bring together the representatives of workers and employers, along with governments, to debate and discuss through this tripartite approach how the system of international labor standards cover the world of work. These standards are also supervised by the ILO and as such allows us to create through the tripartite structure the rules of the road for the modern economy. In light of this effort, there were many issues that governments, businesses, and workers needed to come together on. In this incredibly tumultuous time, people from all sectors were looking for more certainty and value in the nature of work. There were previously no real rules to guide people on what was expected from each partner, and there was a realization that everyone needed a voice in the future of work to improve production, output, and satisfaction, as well as a sense of fairness. So when the ILO had started, as you can imagine, in the aftermath of World War I, this wild dream came about, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt used to refer to us as, workers and employers and governments sitting together and working on these issues where there were no rules. So we had to actually sort of work with these three actors within each country that were started with us. And it was looking at unemployment. It was looking at providing gainful employment for people because you had tens of millions of young men returning from war whose only livelihood at the time was being able to wage war. So you want to make sure that everybody has a chance for work. So you needed to overcome the privation, the starvation, the vulnerable workers that were out there. So the ILO started off working, as I said, making sure that children were not working, that they were in school and learning. We also ensured that women could be working in the workplace. A third convention is on night work for women. The fact that women were actually had a place in the world of work, which was kind of unknown prior to that as well, too. We also looked at a number of other issues, such as hours of work. As I said before, you know, the, the concept of the working week was it just always continued. So in the very beginning, it was setting the basic rules of the game in order to ensure that there were no problems in terms of people understanding one another. If this is starting to sound a bit familiar, it is because many of the same themes still resonate today as people assess the employer-employee relationship. This has really accelerated as the Great Resignation hits its high point, and employers are looking for any and all ways to retain their employees, and employees are looking to maximize their happiness in this new economy. 
seems like from great chaos can emerge wonderful opportunities for reimagination. While the themes may remain the same, what are the current issues that workers, businesses, and governments are grappling with in terms of creating positive work environments? I think the most important issue that we're addressing right now has been not only the impact of COVID-19, but how COVID-19 has exacerbated existing problems. Uh, we had very severe crisis taking place before that. In our analysis, before COVID-19 had struck, half a billion people had insufficient access to paid work. And more than 630 million people, almost one in five workers, lived in extreme or moderate poverty. So having poverty, and this came out of the ILO's Declaration of Philadelphia to say that poverty anywhere is a threat to prosperity everywhere. And that's very true. So you need to ensure that people have some opportunity to earn money to create opportunities for themselves and for their children. So we are looking at the issues of employment and decent work. We have a number of existing uh, what we call flagship programs. So the core of all of that is promoting fundamental rights. So this is about eliminating child labor, eliminating forced labor and human trafficking, eliminating discrimination in respect to employment, and also promoting freedom of association, collective bargaining. When you have a voice in the workplace and someone is protecting your rights in that workplace, it's not to say that higher levels of unionization are always the best thing, but we do see from our analysis that when people are unionized, they have better pay, they have better benefits, they have better opportunities, and they have security in the workplace. And that has to happen through dialogue between the workers and employers. The second flagship program we have is on health and safety for all. So this is reducing the incidence of work-related deaths and injuries, which are in the hundreds of millions every year that we see people in the workplace being injured. Now, this is not good for the worker, of course, because they are suffering the injuries, but it's not good for businesses either, right? Because this creates higher insurance costs. It means that you're losing workers, that you have to retrain, you have to retool, you, you have to pay penalties. So I think it is in the interest of employers as well to ensure that there's safety and health in the workplace. And of course, COVID-19 is case in point that if you don't address that and you don't have the proper PPEs in place, global supply chains grind to a halt. If you're using lean uh, management processes with 73 people on a line making one product, if one person is sick, that whole line becomes sick. So we really need to look at safety and health. The other flagship programs are jobs and peace for resilience, because we know that employment generation is absolutely essential for conflict-affected and disaster-prone countries. I myself was in Banda Aceh in uh, 2004 when the tsunami had struck, and over 200,000 people were killed instantly by this 100-foot wave that came in and destroyed the entire peninsula up in Banda Aceh. And one of the most important things was get people back to work get people to think about the future for themselves. They had to focus on the positive aspects of that. Otherwise, that creates vulnerable social and political instability, which we want to ensure that doesn't happen. The last two flagship programs are social protection to all. Uh, as I mentioned, this is about access to healthcare, family allowances, unemployment benefits, old age and disability. And the reason that's important is because this social protection, which we call in the US social safety nets, it provides opportunities for people not to fall into abject poverty. And the response to COVID-19 by the US, by Canada, by the developed countries in Western Europe and around the world, as well as developing and emerging economies, this was the biggest exercise in social protection for all. It provided income to people who lost their jobs. It provided opportunity for people to access healthcare. It provided opportunity for school to have continuity, for businesses to have continuity. So having those social protections in place, not only in disaster circumstances, but it also helps people with the transition from job to job. It's not 
not always clear that you go from one job to the next. Sometimes you have something in between which you have no jobs. It may last for a month, a year, or two years. We're seeing that. Many people in the U.S. and uh, around the world are suffering from the fact that not everybody can get a job. And once they lose their job, finding another job, especially when you become older, is very difficult. So they shouldn't be allowed to fall into abject poverty because once you lose your network of contacts, once you're out of the circle of work, it's very difficult to find another job. And then finally, on a very practical level, the ILO has a program called Better Work. And Better Work is an operation at the factory level, working with businesses to help lift millions out of poverty, not only by providing decent work and empowering women, but it also drives business competitiveness and promoting inclusive economic growth. So businesses that are leading companies on this, that are providing opportunities, that are paying better wages, are actually not only helping the company attract better talent that stays longer, that's more loyal, but it also provides a greater economic velocity within that economy as well, too. So if people have disposable incomes, they're going out and they're buying food, they're buying clothes, they're buying you know, motorcycles, they're buying cars, they're sending their kids to school. So that creates an economy in and of itself. So ensuring that people have good jobs, they're getting good pay and good conditions of work is actually creating better economies. Not that we have to slice up a smaller pie, but you're increasing the size of that pie so that it's more for more people. These are not easy shifts to make, particularly in a world of so much uncertainty. Businesses are unsure of their supply chains, of their workforce, of the potential for lockdowns and disease outbreaks. Governments are unsure of where their economies are headed, despite their best efforts to keep them on track. Workers are unsure of the stability of their jobs, as well as if there is something better for them out there. So, how is the ILO working within their tripartite structure to create their vision of a human-centered approach to work? So we're promoting inclusive and structural transformations as labor markets evolve, how uh, new technologies are triggering these impacts, about how these demographic and climate change shifts are happening and changing the world of work. The injection of pathogens through COVID-19 has shown that an unhealthy workplace is an unproductive workplace. So we really need to kind of look at how the world of work is changing. So in adapting to that, the ILO is now focusing on a number of areas. We fortuitously will have a new director general starting shortly. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a preview on the vision, there are five priority areas that the ILO is focused on. Our first area is on good governance in the world of work. So this is stronger normative action. So this enhances the supervisory mechanism. It ensures the integration of labor standards and trade and investment and development programs. It ensures a healthy working environment, especially in global supply chains, which we are all dependent upon. It also looks at a better and effective dialogue between employers and workers as well as strengthening those institutions and policies that are focused on people. So full and productive employment for the just transition from a high carbon to low carbon. It looks at sustainable enterprises because if you don't have businesses, you don't have jobs. So we need to ensure that there's concerted action to ensure that enterprises are sustainable and they have productivity growth. We also look at universal, what we call social protection. This is a life cycle approach, which looks at things such as access to healthcare, to education, to active labor market policies, to transitions from school to work, transitions from work to retirement, and also old age, such as pensions and so, as well as other manifestations such as fair labor migration. We've been very much involved because today most migration is due to people looking for good jobs. The third element of that, the chapeau, is really policy coherence for social justice. 
So we need to ensure that there is a agreement across the multilateral system on what we're doing in terms of the policy. We need to ensure that there is a transition from informality to formality. For example, in the world today, there are 2 billion people who work informally. 86% of workers in Africa are in informal economies. In the Americas, it's 40%. So we need to ensure that people have this uh, opportunity to work in the formal economy, because if you're not working in the formal economy, number one, you're not covered by labor legislation. Number two, you have no benefits, so you have to work your entire life. There's no such thing as pension. But also, it starves the country of that fiscal space that they need in order to provide for their citizens. So it's really quite important making that transition. And of course, through all of this decent work, through global supply chains, through trade and investments, through crisis and post-crisis situations, decent work sits at the center of that because it is about a human-centered approach. Over the course of their 105-year history, the International Labor Organization has notched several wins that have produced benefits for businesses and workers. One of the biggest comes in the form of a complete mindset shift that has been taking hold since the 1970s. So businesses today are realizing as they move away from just doing marketing exercises to show that they're a good company, they're actually embedding within their institutions themselves this new ESG, so environment, social, and governance. Looking at the environment and looking at how they're using natural goods and so, I mean, using commodities, we've seen that in packaging, reducing the footprint on the environment which is ensuring that there is an environment for the children in the future. I think the idea about looking at the social aspects, ensuring that they treat the workers better, providing non-discriminatory hiring policies so that women can join the workforce. When you have a more diverse and a more inclusive workplace, you have greater productivity and you actually have greater innovation. And then in terms of governance, it is following the rules of the road, that everybody plays by the same rules of the game. We see that, for example, in trade agreements. The ILO is mentioned and the standard fundamental rights of the ILO are in the labor provisions of, for example, the USMCA trade agreement. And the ILO has been working with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office on ensuring that the workers in Mexico are not so underpaid that they put at risk the jobs of American automaker workers as well as Canada. So I, I think the idea now is that there are rules of the road. There are businesses that understand that it benefits them. And at the end of the day, when you start to look at what the needs of the workers are to the employers themselves, I think what we're finding out is that it's actually cheaper to work with the workers, provide them you know, with the small benefits that are being asked for, rather than having to do rear guard action and looking to protect themselves and, and existing lawsuits or you know, people fleeing certain brands because they don't feel that these are good employers. So, so I think overall, businesses start to understand that we need to work together. That's, that's the first issue. And what does this look like in action? The ILO has worked, for example, in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan was known for forced and child labor because every year they mobilize 2.4 million people for the harvesting of cotton. The cotton industry in Uzbekistan is about the size of Mississippi. So it's about the sixth largest cotton producer in the world. But because they were sort of clearing out the schools, clearing out the hospitals, clearing out the military barracks for everybody to go in the field and pick cotton, that is a classical definition of forced labor because people had no choice. They had to do that. And with the World Bank and with civil society and with media that were raising the issues, keeping the pressure on, the ILO bringing in its expertise, but also, as I said, the ILO is a part of that country. So the government, the workers and employers, worked with the ILO, and within seven years, we were able to reduce 
forced in child labor to less than 1,000 people. Now, these are a bit of residuals that are taking hold, but that has allowed now the U.S. government to not put the uh, Uzbek government on a ban. So their cotton is no longer banned and companies can go in and invest. That is a development success story which you don't find very much of. So when you have the economics involved alongside the social prerogatives as well too, and you deliver on both, you're able to see that there are benefits to working together. So I, I think this mind shift, this this change in, in the way in which businesses view rights-based institutions like the ILO and becoming comfortable in those discussions, and I do get calls all the time from companies that want to know, how do we address these issues? And we do it quietly, we do it offline, we work with them. We provide them with expertise through the employer's organizations and through our mechanisms in the organization. So that is actually, I think, uh, really changed the way in which globalization is enacting today. While this trend is growing, we are not totally there yet. We hear about big corporations like Amazon and Starbucks actively trying to discourage unionization in their workforces. We continue to see forced labor being used around the world. Is it easy to get everyone to see the benefits of working together to create positive changes? I think it's getting better, but I think the majority of the discussions today are still trying to convince businesses that unions aren't bad actors and that they are actually trying to provide opportunities for their members, right? Just as uh, businesses are trying to provide profits to their shareholders, right? We believe in the stakeholder approach, right? Because if you have good workers, they can promote your brand. They can be good ambassadors for that. They become very loyal. And then you've got a talent pool that's well-trained and that works for the company for a very long time. So I think that the, the benefits are there, but it is true that it is unfortunately a bit in the minority today where companies realize the value of unions. And, and some of it is just, I think, misperceptions. I don't think that a lot of people at the C-suite level actually understand the union uh, mindset. I mean, they themselves have protection, right? I mean, as a professional, if I go to work at a company, especially at a senior level, I already know what my salary is going to be. I know what my conditions of work are. I know what benefits I'm going to receive. I mean, all of those things are set. So we respond positively to those who are at the higher level, but those who are doing the dangerous, dull and dirty jobs, those are the ones who are handling the goods, making the goods, you know, uh, mining or sourcing the commodities that are turned into the products that are used by people today. Those are the people who are actually creating your products. Those are the people who can actually ensure that you have a going concern. And also, I think it shows that when you actually treat people well, and I would like to have some of the economists out there start to think about the difference between paying the lawyers in order to protect them from getting unionization, such as the perversely named right to work. And again, you know, everyone has the right to have their opinions about it. But right to work for the ILO is a human right. Everyone has the right to a job. And I believe that people have a right to have a voice within the workplace. I think all of us, if we feel that we are not listened to, if we feel that we are overruled, if we feel that we are surplus to requirement for a company, we're not going to give our all. So we're not as productive. So I do think that there is a mind shift underway in that. In, in terms of how employers should be looking at this. So, for example, there are some employers that are starting to realize that they need to attract better talent or have regular talent coming into their organizations because that is your most valuable resource. Reasons are 
showing why people aren't going back to work, right? We heard about the great resignation, you know, where people are starting to reassess their life and reassess what the what the job means to them. And even though we're at historic lows in terms of unemployment and fairly high in terms of workforce participation, employers need to attract the right talent. So you have to speak to what people need. While this conversation may seem down on employers, there's some real bright spots out there in terms of organizations that treat employees really well and receive high marks in terms of their work. There are hundreds of best of companies to work for lists out there, and many well-known businesses receive very high ratings. On the Forbes Top 100 list, Cisco comes in at number one with 96% of its workforce saying that it is a great place to work. 98% of employees at Hilton say that it is a company they are proud to work for. 94% of employees at Salesforce say they feel good about the ways in which their company contributes to the community. These are all multi-million dollar companies with tens of thousands of employees. To reach these levels of satisfaction indicates a huge benefit to the workers, the employer, and the shareholders. Over one-third of Cisco's 40,000 employees have been with the company for more than a decade. This is a huge advantage when you consider it costs, on average, six to nine months of an employee's wages to replace someone who leaves. With the average worker earning over $108,000 per year at Cisco, times that by 40,000 employees, you can see how the savings can add up quickly simply by retaining the workforce. I think the other issues that we fear that, you know, like a lot of young people are starting to pull away. They don't necessarily want to work their way up through the corporate ladder. They go into companies that they don't feel it's right, they're leaving. And even though you may be providing them with inducements, I, you know, there are big tech companies that provide free food or free dry cleaning and all of this. That's really not what people are looking for. They're looking to be valued in the company. They need to know that they have a career opportunity for themselves and moving forward and that the company that they're working for not only provides them with those benefits, but they respect that company and they respect the company that respects them. So there was a recent article by the Harvard Business Review that talked about this as the great exploration where people are really just starting to kind of think about what the world around them means. What are the new demands that I'm making on myself, right? It's not just a matter of doing no harm. I mean, that's an absolute minimum, but workers need fulfillment. Workers need people at work, men and women, right? So let's not just objectify them as workers. We are all workers and people need self-realization. I need to know that I make a difference in the world today. And that's the point at which I think when workers and employers get together and they talk about these issues, that's when we shape a new reality. This reality paints a better picture of the labor market. Instead of being the great resignation, as the past couple of years have been called, it might be better to look at it as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce recently termed it, the great reshuffling. While certain industries, mainly food services, are facing labor shortages, other areas of the economy, mainly businesses and professional services, have a surplus of labor. One of the biggest driving factors in this is access to remote work opportunities. Industries and sectors that do not or cannot offer remote work are seeing much higher churn rates in their labor forces as people look for opportunities that better suit their life situation. For all those parents out there who had to supervise their child's remote learning, working from home, and flexible scheduling are key to remaining in the workforce. 
A recent Gallup poll indicated that 30% of U.S. workers would seek new employment if they were not offered remote or hybrid opportunities. Remote work is not the only technological change that is changing the nature of work. Automation of all kinds is changing who does what work, what skills are required to work in all fields, as well as the productive capacity of all businesses. This is certainly nothing new, but the rate of change has increased in the past several decades. Technologically driven changes in the world of work have always taken place. Whether you have gone from the paddle boat to the sail, or you've gone from the cart to a car or truck, automation in the past helped us do the heavy lifting. The automation today is helping us with the computational work and analytical work. And that is now starting to displace not only the workers in the bottom of the pyramid, but actually workers in the middle. In the future, some of this automation, like artificial intelligence and so, will actually displace some of the senior level executives as well. Because what is the job of the CEO and chief operating officer is to take in lots of data and information and to make decisions. Well, AI can think a lot faster. So I think not only just the workers that have to be worried, but those who are running those companies. So there are different perspectives from different groups. Employers are spending significantly higher sums on technology. But by spending that money, they need to meet their return on that investment. So that means they need somebody who is ready on day one. And if not, there's a cost, right? And the workers themselves need those skills, which is not always clear what that skill is, or is it readily available to them at a reasonable cost? I mean, who pays for this? Who pays for the skilling of workers for the new technologies? Is it the government? Is it the employer? Is it the student themselves, the worker themselves that has to do this? So we have to look at that. Speaking of education, the rate of technological change is demanding workers continue to learn throughout their careers. I know this was a real feature of my own work over the past three years, as I have needed to learn new technology platforms and skills in order to maintain the high-quality programs people have come to expect from the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Whether formal or informal, learning and knowledge is vital to the success in the future economy. Let's think about how we look at education in the future, because education in the past was based on a factory model. Get them in, get them out, front load your education, 30 years of employment, and then you retire. Now, small question on that. How many people in the future are going to have pensions? Probably not very many, right? So back to this world that we always are working. And someone once had asked me, how many goods and services do machines and robots and artificial intelligence purchase? Right? So we still need people who have disposable income to make the economy work. So when you look at the different perspectives, workers realize that right now they will never stop learning. People will always have to have continuing education, lifelong education in order to advance your career. Absolutely important. Uh, as I said, the question is who is paying for that? And I think really it's a collaborative effort. I think businesses can provide uh, training. I think they should be working with educational institutions and forecasting skills that are necessary for the new world of work. And that would actually create better fits uh, between the skills that are required with the employer and the worker themselves. 
Now, unions also contribute to that as a major source of training and expand the skills for workers in new occupations. So they can be a very important ally. So again, I do ask businesses to look at unions afresh and reach across the aisle and speak to them and so, because unions can help actually help not only the pathway to employment, because they will source the jobs for people, they will provide them with transferable skills, they will credential them, right? I mean, if somebody is working in my house as an electrician or a plumber, I want to know that they are actually uh, have a certification or a credential in that area. For employers, it's more about pairing computers with the cognitive, social, emotional skills of human beings. So it is augmenting the human being. So they're looking at it in a much more detached sort of way where, you know, human beings are fungible, right? I mean, if you can find somebody physically and now with COVID showing that remote work is possible, many things are being distributed. So there's actually global competition for skills. So you may not even be able to find the people in this country who have the skills you want at the price you're willing to pay. So I think businesses should be concerned that you know they have a, a role in this alongside the government and the workers. And that's why the ILO is so successful, I think, as a tripartite institution, because you bring that together. Now, employers provide education through apprenticeships, traineeships, internships, through other types of mechanisms. And they're equipping their workforce, not only with the hard skills, but also the soft skills. In addition, automation is displacing jobs all across the world with consequences both big and small. This is where the ILO can provide great insights into all the intended and unintended consequences as a result of changes to the way work is done. Not only can they help each of their three constituencies see some of the upcoming changes from their own point of view, but also from the viewpoint of the two other partners. Automation is a perfect example where the impact on workers and businesses is pretty clear but not necessarily for governments. Can you automate the entire electronics industry? Probably can. But the gap between the probability that a job can be automated and the probability that it will be automated is systemically larger in countries with labor costs, meaning that it's a political decision. You are not going to put millions of people out of work just because you want to robotize the entire operation. I look at Sub-Saharan Africa, which I think about 68% of the population in Sub-Saharan Africa is existing in subsistence agriculture. Now, you can take GPS-enabled carbine harvesters, and you can put them on the ground, and you can have yourself food security forever. But what are you going to do with the tens of millions of people that you've put out of work? How are you going to redeploy them? How are you going to train them? How are you going to create those industries? It is going to overwhelm the country. And if you have... 10 million, 30 million, 40 million people out of 100 million in your country that depend on work, you've got a political problem on your hands. So it is really important to look at that. Now, in developed countries, we have had an increased use of robotics, automation technologies, as well as labor, uh, digital labor platforms, right? Many people are being hired for this, although digital labor platforms are pretty much in what we say food services and for taxi services, right? So that's the large part of the labor platforms, although you know, TaskRabbit and Upwork and other sort of systems are trying to connect people with skills and talents who may not live in a big city, but be able to access that. The problem with that is that you can become a digital day laborer because you don't actually have a voice. When the Freelancers Union in New York did a, a study, uh, and again, in very early days in the digital labor platforms, they found that actually 40% of the people who did work on these platforms didn't get paid. And the reason they didn't get paid is because somebody said the quality is not there. And that was the end of it. 
there was no intermediation. They didn't know what to do. So they put all this time and effort in and they weren't told why it was wrong or what they can do to fix it. They were just told you're not getting paid. So there is a problem when you don't have a voice, when you don't have options, when there is no remedy for you to be able to speak to the firm about how do you fix that. Now, in developed countries, we love the idea of reshoring or nearshoring because that will tighten up the global supply chain. It will you know, give us lower transportation costs and there's a, a shorter lag time between design production and final sales. I just don't know if we're ever going to get there because the manufacturing side of that is usually done with labor. And because also today, labor is much more flexible. I mean, somebody could change the design production specifications and adapt to that if they are a trained seamstress or if they are trained in putting together uh, electronic components. To retool an entire uh, machine, a robot for that, I mean, that would cost millions of dollars in uh, programming costs. So I think today still people can be paid well and will still be cheaper than the automation because of the different problems that you face. So I think that much of the concern about the new automation technologies is really based on a narrow emphasis on the substitution effects at the task level. But technology affects jobs, more importantly, through complementary effects, market expansion effects, income effects, uh, income and outcome production linkages. So it is not just about displacing a worker, it's about so many more issues in that realm. As the future of work continues to undergo changes, collaboration remains the best path forward to a human-centered approach to work. A happy and engaged workforce benefits everyone as it lowers the need for social services, it increases productivity, and creates a stable society that does not look for major changes. There is no one easy solution to create an inclusive, equitable, and positive environment for everyone to have decent work but through ongoing efforts, new solutions, and a clear vision, organizations like the ILO can continue the necessary work to create a path forward that can benefit everyone. I was told by Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, one time when I worked with her, an amazing individual, she said that Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the lead on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, used the ILO's charter as the basis for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And every single right that's enumerated in the ILO's constitution, which is Article uh, 13 out of the Treaty of Versailles, is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So just ensuring that we work together, that we see each other as, whether you're a worker or employer, as equals, uh, that I am contributing, you are contributing to me, that you respect one another, and that you are engaging in a way that is positive both for yourself and for your community. So by doing those things, by companies ensuring that they are following those basic rights, by individuals ensuring that they're speaking with the employer and understanding their constraints, right? Because sometimes employers can't pay that extra wage. They are, you know, on their back foot. They need that help. So you can actually help them as an individual because individual workers are also constituents of our representatives. And they can speak on the behalf of the companies to their representatives as well. You know, we're sitting on the steps of Congress right here. So I think the issue is that what can people do? Understand that we're in it together, that work will succeed or fail based on whether we work together or not. And I think that is a very straightforward issue and the ILO stands ready. And as an international organization, we have lots of data, we have lots of statistics and analysis, we have lots of publications, sometimes 300 pages in which one page would do. But reading those materials, understanding that, and understanding where the world of work is going, I think through that understanding, through that empathy for the other side, 
That's how we move this agenda forward. Whether you are in an organization or whether you're a government official or not, you can actually make an impact upon that community and upon the economic quality and social progress in your community. Thank you to Kevin Cassidy of the International Labor Organization for your insights. And we look forward to hearing more from you on CSR and ESG standards and how they make for stronger companies and stronger communities. We hope that you can join us live in person or online on October 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern time for this great discussion. You'll have the opportunity to ask your questions and dive deeper into the discussion. You can find more information and registration via the link in the episode description. This has been the Global in the Granite State podcast, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We appreciate your time and interest in this series, helping us to build a strong global community of people who look to understand the challenges the world faces today. Tim Horgan is our host, producer, audio engineer, visionary, manager, and any other title you can think of. Our intro music is Admin by A.A. Alto. And our interlude music is aptly named Work by Steve Combs. Until next time. Mm-hmm.